Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web. With breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a thing that you listen to. This is due to a combination of factors. How's it going? It's nice to be with you. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. I'm very happy to be delivering today's program. I have a great guest. Summer Browning is here on the show. She's a very funny woman, a very gifted writer and a poet. And she has a new collection out called Backup Singers, which is available uh, available now from uh, Birds. It's an independent press called Birds. How do you like that? Who published you? Birds published me. I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that I was published by Birds. And by the way, uh, if you're a poet, it seems like an especially fitting thing to be able to say. It's ethereal, spiritual. <laughs> you get to tell people that birds published you, that you are uh, published by birds. How does somebody react to that is my question. Uh, what does it mean? Is it real? Are you being literal? 
Are you operating at the level of metaphor? Is there some sort of hidden meaning? One thing that I will say is that I, uh, I like the name Bird. A friend of mine uh, had a dog named Bird who died. And I like it when people name animals, generally speaking. I like it when people name animals after other animals. I'll be honest about that. Uh, I'm also a fan of Charlie Parker, whose nickname was Bird, and uh, who also died. And I think that's really all I have for you today, by way of a monologue. I'm freestyling here. Can you tell? <laughs> I have to catch a plane. It's a busy week. It's a shortened week. I have to pack. My daughter has been running a low fever. I'm in one of those situations in life where uh, everything is bearing down on me. But yet I think I'm handling it. I'm doing okay. I'm handling it with a plum as I race to complete all of my assigned duties. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I guess today, once again, I'm really doing this. I'm just going to go straight into the guest. I hope that's okay. My guest is Summer Browning. Uh, Summer Browning. Her new poetry collection is called Backup Singers, and it is available now from the aforementioned Birds. Where did you get that book? I got it from Birds. That's what you can tell people. Here she is, folks. This is Summer Browning, and her new book, once again, is called Backup Singers. I said that wrong. Let me try that again. <laughs> her new book is called Backup Singers. Thank you. I am in Denver, Colorado. I'm in an office, my office, at the Auraria Library. Um... I have a window that looks into the library, so that's psychologically devastating. Um, <laughs> why, why, why? Why is it psychologically devastating? Well, because, you know, you would expect to have, like, a little reprieve to gaze out the window, but it's actually, like, into my further workplace. Oh, right, right, right. I thought it was because, yeah. I thought it was because you actually wanted to be down among the stacks, like, with the people, but no. Oh, no. Not at all. Mm -mm. There's just no sunlight. This is basically what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but I mean, it's like, I mean, if you were in prison and your window looked into the prison, <laughs> what? That's awful, <laughs> awful. But a uh, librarian—that seems like a nice job. It's a nice job, but it's a little stressful, actually. Is it really? Why? Uh, well, libraries just 
you know, always constantly have to justify themselves and hunt for money and staff and resources. So we're just, we're understaffed. And, you know, as, as things get more electronic, uh, they require even more maintenance. You just could just buy a book and just put it on the shelf and there you go. There it is the end. Right. Um, but no, now these, you know, there's, um, platform changes and website changes and outages and IP addresses that somehow get mixed up and off-campus access and all sorts of. Oh my god! Yeah, so it's like a technology learning curve. I sort of get that because I do web stuff and like, you know, on a very modest level. But even there, you know, unless you know what you're doing, uh, in a like in an in-depth way, it can be. I think you know what I, I even if you do know what you're doing, I just think the nature of that sort of thing is just tedious. It's just, it's just inherently tedious. It is. Mm-hmm. And so much of it is out of your control. So you have to sort of wait for the vendor or the publisher or the whoever else you're dealing with to write you back. And, um, yeah. So I how do you, know. so I don't know. So how do you, do, like, do you, uh, struggle to maintain your patience? To maintain my patience? Yeah. Like, do you, like, I mean, um, I do some once in a while. I'm pretty relaxed, pretty patient. You are okay. And yeah, so- and also, also, you know, it's work. Work. I, I very much can divide my, you know, my real life away from my work. Right. Well, and and it's. I think it's a noble cause. Like I feel like libraries. Um, you know, this notion of like, oh, everything's going digital, and we can just digitize libraries, and people can just like quote unquote borrow digital copies of books. Like, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, but I do think it's troubling to imagine uh, a world where you don't have actual physical books in a library and, like, the traditional library model is somehow done away with. Like, is there any danger of that happening? Um, yeah, I think there is. Uh, but it's not danger, really. It's just the way it's going to be. I mean, you know, what... what um University Library doesn't have a cafe and a huge study space and, um, you know, a 3D printer and, you know, like all these new um, little, um, I don't know, other ways to bring people in, you know, like it's definitely changing. There's like. But I mean, like, do you think that like physical copies of books in libraries is going to be a thing of the past? Uh, not entirely, not but entirely. it's definitely getting that way. I mean, the. You know, the most cutting-edge university library we have here in the U.S. is, like, NCSU, North Carolina State University. And, um, uh, you know, I don't even know. 95% of their books are off, are in uh, in this locked warehouse that a robot gets them for you. What? Like like, yeah. ha- like hard copies of books? A robot goes and gets you your book? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's called a book bot, I think, actually. <laughs> oh, my God. Why? Uh, what, what's the point? Um, well, they can store them by size, you know, and stick them in there. And just, we, you know, we don't have enough money to, to pay for enormous, enormous buildings um, to house stacks where you can roam and freely in there. Um, and so many of them aren't used, too. Uh, right. So there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, there's some sad reasons why they shouldn't do that too. I mean, for me, I actually, something that's really interesting to me is the, um, the whole idea of like, um, serendipity and browsability and that getting lost. And, and, and right now any technology that tries to suggest that doesn't really work well, 
you know, I mean, for me, I remember standing in the stacks and you're in the cooking section or something and, you know, way up there is some strange book about, you know, I don't know, uh, Groucho Marx, you know, just because the sections are next to each other or something. They're not in real life. But, right. Um, well, and you don't think like in like the Amazon algorithm, like they try to like approximate that or like even improve upon it by using your past search history to like suggest things to you. Like that's not the same either. Like you just like, no, it's not, it's not like you need like the, the possibility of like happy accidents mm-hmm. in, in book browsing. I feel like yeah. the, the digital takes that away. So here's how, here's how out of it I am. Like when you, like when you check out like an ebook from a library, you can do that, right? You can do that. We don't do that here. You can do that at public libraries for the most part, yeah. What do you do? Like, I don't even, like, what do they send it to you temporarily on your phone or something? Yeah, I think they send it to your account, your Kindle account. Okay. I think. I've never done it. I dislike ebooks. Yeah, I don't like them either. I mean, I can, I some, I'll read them at night just because uh, it's just like practical considerations. Like, I don't want to wake my wife up with the light, you know, so it's like easier to read it on a device because there's a softer glow, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just find it, uh, you know, distracting. It's like, the, it's not good to have like a book on the same device that the internet lives on. I know that the Kindle, oh. and I know that the Kindles, you know, the Kindle supposedly solves that there's an, a, you know, a, a, there are versions of the Kindle that are not internet, uh, connective or whatever, but I just prefer an old school book. I don't mm-hmm. think, I don't think it needs to be improved upon. So, uh, but libraries, like you have a degree in library sciences. Yes. Okay. I've, I've actually heard. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that this is a good degree to have, that there's actually like a lot of demand for people with that training. No? I wouldn't say it a lot, but there is some, yeah. So what do you learn when you get a master's degree in library science? Well, you learn a lot of different things. But, you know, um, some things just about the history of libraries, the history of the book, um, how to how to deal with... Um, special collections. I mean, you can go all sorts of different ways. Um, you can talk about reference um, questions and how to how to sort of pull the information out of somebody who's asking you something because people don't just ask exactly for what they need. Right. Um, so you sort of have to, you know, do a little investigative work and fish around and help them in a more broader sense. Okay. Um, well, so what track did you take? Like, are you into special collections and like rare books and that sort of thing? No, I'm not. I mean, that was very interesting, but really the jobs there are zero. Yeah. Um, no, no, I'm, I'm super technical. I'm in technical services. I'm a cataloger for the most part, but now I just deal with e-resources and access issues. Okay. I don't even know what that means. I feel well, like that means when someone can't get in an e-book or, you know, the linking syntax, the metadata of the citation <laughs> doesn't work. Um, oh and God. it's pointing you to uh, the wrong article or something okay. like that. Okay. So, and you live in Denver, uh, you write poetry, you draw comics, you're very funny on Twitter. You're a funny person. Do you know that? Or, or are you aware of that? Have people told you that before? People tell me that, but I don't listen to people. You don't? No. Do you That's feel, where you get in trouble. Okay, well, here's the thing, though, because people who are funny, especially, you know, some of the people who are funny as performers or people who are funny on the page or on the screen or whatever it is, uh, you know, sometimes when you meet them in person, you're like, well, you know, where is this coming from? Do you feel like there's a dissonance between the humor that you write or the comics that you draw and your actual day-to-day life and personality? Um, I think there's maybe just a little, actually. 
I, one thing that's really important to me is to try to be yourself, your true self, as much as you can, um, <laughs> to live as authentically as you can. In both spaces. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's hard to do at work. That's like that's the place where I really can't. I can't sort of mesh my work life with my real life 100%. Yeah, you know, that's one of my frustrations. That's always been one of my frustrations, you know, when it comes to professional contexts of any kind, like business conversations, business relationships, transactional relationships, is that uh, you have to suppress your self. And like the, you have to suppress and regulate the way you communicate. And it just, I don't know, I guess for somebody who's wired like I am, that feels really bad. Do you feel that way? I I do, but I mean that self is real too. Yeah. So maybe you just have to be more. Mm, your super ego has to be in overdrive or something. Like you have to be more regulate regulatory over yourself. Yeah. And that's where it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I have decent social graces. It's not like I can't control myself. It just feels like. I don't know. It just feels like it, it boxes in human relationships somehow or something like that. And I guess maybe if you're working in a library, it's not quite the same as like, you know, uh, trying to sell a screenplay or I don't know what it is. Sell advertising, all those weird things I've tried to sell in my life. It just feels like a different kind of, uh, scenario, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but anyway, anyhow, um, selling, selling in particular. Yeah, yeah. You know, any kind of transactional thing. And I don't think you probably get as much of that in, you know, working in in a library. Um, no. Mm-mm. So okay. So you're from you're actually from out here originally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Born in Los born Los in Angeles. Venice. Yep. Born in Venice. Yeah. Uh, did you and spent your entire childhood here? I I moved when I was fifteen. Oh, you did. Yeah. That's a tough age to move. Oh, it was horrible. Yeah. Horrible. Where'd you go? <laughs> what, what happened? I moved to um, kind of rural Virginia. Holy shit. That's a big I change. mean, it's, it's an hour south of D.C., but it's a small town called Fredericksburg. Is that anywhere near Middleburg? Where? I don't know, actually. Okay. But, I mean, like, I stayed with a friend of mine. His parents had a place, like a beautiful place in Middleburg. It's like this really kind of like pastoral countryside, uh, like rolling hills and like hay. Mm-hmm. Is, that what, is that what you were living in? Yeah. It's a little, probably a little less country than that. Okay. But, um but yeah, Rolling Hills so lush and green and Humid. beautiful. Virginia's beautiful. Okay, so but okay, but you grew up in Venice, like on the west side. Are your parents hippies or like uh, bohemians? Yeah, my mom always said that they were hippies with jobs. Okay, so responsible, mm-hmm. responsible hippies. You weren't like it wasn't like a commune or something. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, uh, no. But I, we had they. My mom, mother had friends who had a sort of communal. I just remember going over there and. I, all these kids were just running wild and nobody's mom was there. It was like other people's moms. Yeah. I had a friend who was uh, from New York who was raised in a similar situation where like parents kind of traded kids and it was like multiple, it was, I think it was based on this concept of like multiple parents and like you had a group parenting situation. I don't know. I, I'm, I, I don't know it well enough to speak about it uh, in detail, but it was something like that. And maybe that, maybe there was like a West coast version of that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Um, but a happy childhood yeah. in California, you enjoy uh-huh. enjoyable. Mm-hmm. You like LA? I love LA so much. I miss it so much. You do. Do you think that it's because you moved away when you were 15 and so you hold some sort of idealized version of it in your head? Um, 
a little bit, but every time I've been back, I'm just blown away by just the vibrancy and the art everywhere, like in every little corner. I lived in New York for six years, and um, I guess I'm sort of pining for a big city too, but um, I don't know. Just It just feels easier there to be yourself. Yeah. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. I, Los Angeles is a little bit... I mean. New York, I mean, Los Angeles is expensive. New York is really expensive, and you don't get much space. Like L.A., I feel like there are still some pockets. You can go be um, like weird uh, cheaply. <laughs> I, guess you can, I guess you can do that in Brooklyn in certain pockets and out in Queens and stuff, but uh, I don't know. I feel like Los Angeles, Los Angeles seems somehow logistically easier to me, too, and then the, the weather doesn't hurt, and... I yeah. like I like the the nature aspect, like having access to the desert and the mountains and the ocean and stuff. Yeah, everything, everything. You want to go skiing? Okay. You want to go swimming? Okay. Yeah, hiking, everything. Okay. So, um, uh, and then just to kind of like uh, make a personal inquiry, because you're now in Denver. I used to live in Boulder. I went to school there. Oh, cool. And uh, I love I love that part of the country as well. And I, my wife and I, you know, we have a kid now, and it's like we're looking at schools and how are we going to do this, and if we want to have another kid, like. Do you feel like uh, Denver is your place? Like, are you going to stay there? Are you like actually, str- you know, strategizing to work your way back to LA? Or I don't, I don't know if that would happen. But well, I have a little kid. Yeah, I know. I've, I've seen you. I've, I've seen your your motherly tweets, which are very uh-huh. very funny. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, and my husband has a super good job in Boulder. He's a professor. Oh no shit! At CU. Huh? Yep. CU. And, and what uh, what school? Uh, a creative writing in English. Oh wow! Okay, he's a poet too. Cool. That's a good. That's a plum. That's a plum position. It sure is. So, you know, and my job's pretty good, and it's nice here. And Georgia likes it. Our kid, and I don't know. I think I'll be here for a while. Yeah, but not not forever though. It's not a bad spot to be. Denver's mm-hmm. nice. The, you know, but like when I was back there, I, I was like, holy cow! Like, there's a lot of white people here. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. I didn't. I did notice that, and then I was also like, everything's very clean. <laughs> yeah. Not that clean is bad, but it's so it's so strange because, like, you know, I remember coming to LA and being like, "This is chaos. It's filthy," and now like, chaos and filthy is normal to me, and clean is weird. It's just yeah. It you know what? Clean is bad, actually. It's I like, think it's a little antiseptic. You know, it's yeah. Like, it needs a little bit of a rougher edge, or needs mm-hmm. needs it needs some more time to get messed. No up. one was ever inspired by clean. <laughs> Exactly. No. Exactly. So, uh, do you? So, your husband works in Boulder. You don't live in Boulder. Like speaking of no. speaking of clean, my God! Like, uh, I went to college there, and of course, there's like the dirty hippie element. But uh, Boulder has like gentrified beyond belief since I even I was there, and I was back there, and it it, it truly is like you walk down the Pearl Street Mall, and it's just like extremely fit white people in Patagonia everywhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always describe it as like um, some enormous SUV with like a coexist bumper sticker. Yes. You know. I had a free Tibet bumper sticker on my on my truck in college. I was that guy. I have to cop to that. Well, no, that's fine, but it was probably not like a you know Escalade. No. Gas guzzling, no. ludicrous. It was a red. Vehicle. It was a red Jeep. But uh, yeah, I do. You Pretty know, bolder, man. That is way more. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm not from. I'm from the Midwest. You know. I was just. I've always I've said this before, maybe even on this show, but like wh- whatever s- scenario I find myself in, wherever uh, I happen to be living, 
I will like instinctively just try to blend in. So like if you moved me to India, I would be dressing in robes and whatever the, whatever the locals wear, like I'm into it suddenly. Like I have no, I'm a mutable person. (laughs) I just, Hmm. I just don't want to, I don't want anyone, you know, I don't want to stand out. I just want to kind of blend into my scenery somehow. But I came from the Midwest and like within like a month of living in Boulder, was like wearing fleece and like growing my hair out, which I, (laughs) you know, I don't know. I don't know what that says about me. I don't know if that says good things. Yeah. So, (laughs) uh, so anyhow, uh, California to Virginia, what prompted this move from, uh, Los Angeles all the way across the country to Virginia? My father, uh, got transferred there. My mother wanted to live closer to her people in Pennsylvania, but then as soon as we moved, was she she Amish? As soon as, um, no, the other side, Okay. Pittsburgh, steel town. Sure. Yeah. Um, as soon as they moved, they got divorced. So I really don't know why we moved. Very mysterious. So wait, so you're 15. You're already like pissed off that you're that you've been ripped out of like the beach, you know, the Pacific Ocean, and, and now you're in the middle of like Virginia farm country. And then your parents get divorced. Um, did you rebel in high school? Did you go? No, no. I didn't rebel until I was about 32. Oh, you did. You waited. Yeah. Interesting. So okay, so you were a good student. Yes. Oh, very good. Bookish, hardworking. Yep. All the way to college, and then I was really, really bad. Okay, so let's get there. So uh, you leave Virginia, um, and you go to where? You go to the University of Arizona? Or no? Leave Virginia. Oh, um, I went to college in Virginia. Oh, you did? Okay. Hmm? UVA? Uh, Mary Washington. Mary Washington? Hmm? Another small small state school and liberal arts school in uh, Fredericksburg. So I... I stayed close to where I was. Okay. Where I moved. And um, and studied what? I was really shy and introverted, and um, I studied philosophy. Okay. You know, it's just, it's a strange trend. Like I've talked to more authors on this program who studied philosophy uh, as undergraduates. Hmm. I feel like that's like sort of a common thing or se- yeah. semi-common. But uh, <laughs> did you like it? I mean, did you get something out of it that you feel like you took with you? Or was it one of those things where you're like, I don't know what else to do. I'm sort of interested in this. I, well, I, I, I thought it was the only thing that mattered. I loved it. I, I took a lot of out of it. Yeah. Okay. So what philosophers, cause I just, I'm, I'm one of those people who knows nothing about philosophy, but recently I felt bad about that. And so I read, um, a book that tries to basically uh, sum up the entire history of philosophy inside of like 350 pages, uh, just to give myself an overview, you know, and, and to, to try to figure out where I fall on the spectrum or what actually is, uh, you know, sounds good to me. So like, were there particular philosophers or particular traditions in philosophy that resonated with you and that like actually, uh, you know, found their way into your life in terms of how you conduct yourself or whatever? Um, yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, if we're asking the 20 year old summer, I mean, I was just, I was like, so into existentialism, um, for a while. And that's the only class in college I got an A in actually. And, um, and what can you, I mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot. This is like a horrible question, but can you sum up existentialism for listeners? Uh, <laughs> this was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's like Jean-Paul Sartre, like is that right? Mm-hmm. Sartre, Sartre. I, yeah, I yeah, and Simone de Beauvoir. Yeah, who you Those... know that was maybe my first book of feminism that I read, The Second Sex. Yeah, 
So that was really inspiring. But I don't know. I guess it's sort of a little bit about like living authentically and, um, you know, um, not living in bad faith, which I guess would be, um, uh, I don't know, like, not like like you you obey rules because you understand them and you know why they're there and you do everything with a with a sort of presence of mind that uh, res, you know with a responsibility a hum, a human responsibility okay um, i can get down with that i like that yeah uh, but i mean that, that's sort of but like as i read more and more it just sort of it fell apart and it and and um you know, there are just certain situations in the world that existentialism couldn't handle, like just being born into extreme poverty and and to 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 bring that into that realm, it just it, it can't work. You know, you can't just say, you know, you are you unto yourself alone in the world out there, you know. It's like no, there are a zillion forces working against you and um you know, there's more to this story. Is it, is it a highly individualistic philosophy? Like, it's, yeah, it is. Cause like, yes. is, I think there's like, I, th- I really do believe that that's like, if not the, but one of the central tensions in all of human existence is like this tension between the notion of individual liberty and, uh, collectivism. I mean, I guess that's an obvious statement, but it doesn't get enough play because I think the argument often gets reduced and oversimplified into this like communism versus capitalism dichotomy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I don't think like I think it. I think it actually is worth exploring more deeply because, like, I, I personally, like, I totally see the ultimate reality of like everyone is connected, like in a scientifically provable way, and probably to a degree that we um, don't even quite understand with our limited ability to perceive. But uh, at the same time, I think individual liberty is a real thing. Like, I don't want to lord over anybody or ruin anybody's party. So it's like how to balance the tension between those two things. And is there one that is predominant over the other in terms of its uh, ultimate truth? Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just that's the history. That's that's how we've been working together. We've been battling against all of those things. And that's why we have America. And that's why it's the way it is right now. You know, we're just. Yeah, I think individualism is trumping is triumphing right now. I feel, I think it's like. I think it's predominant. I think that the scale, my personal views, I think that the scales are tipped too, a little too far in that direction. And that it is, yeah, maybe it is pushing ahead. But then, you know, I mean, thinking about technology is interesting in this context because, you know, with the internet and with free access to everything and, and open access and, you know, and Google trying to put Wi Fi drones over, you know, developing countries. I mean, yeah. um, that's, that's something else that's that's that can help the collective and and bring us together too but it can also impede on individual liberty <laughs> when yep. the, the google drones are spying on us it's see this is the thing it's like a maddening tangle and like trying to strike some sort of like sane balance between the two seems like a never-ending saga i think it's mm-hmm. just always going to be there and it's up to us yeah. to, to try and and you know what maybe it needs to be there like sometimes i think these tensions like however frustrating they are um, are a matter of necessity, you know, a positive necessity. So, yeah, well, constraints, I mean, they can breed like very interesting, you know, things. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, poetry is all about that. I was going to say in art, you know, and just to bring it back full circle, like art is often off art often benefits from, 
uh, constraints, you know? So like just to kind of try to weave back into a, uh, uh, you know, more germane, uh, literary, uh, topic of conversation like when it comes to constraints and when it comes to your own work like do you ever impose rules on yourself when you set out to do a project i know some artists work like that like they'll say you know if it's a painter they'll say these are my colors and i can't use anything but this or you know somebody's writing a novel they'll say i'm restricted to this pov and uh you know it's all taking place inside of one day so there's a temporal restriction or whatever but you know, when you write your poetry or you do your comics, um, or what have you, like, have you ever worked that way? Like imposing rules from the outset and then trying to work within those parameters? I have, but I, I guess maybe that's more exercisey. Um, uh, yeah. So no, I don't, I, I, I mean, I do. And then I, and it's an exercise and it helps me, I think in other realms, but usually when I, stuff that comes out that way it doesn't mm, it's not good for yeah. me but i mean it you might you feel might, as good you might do it to get your brain started or just to like get words on the page or to warm yeah up. yeah or as like an interesting logic problem or something right so uh like it so in terms of how you actually do work when you do your best work uh, like how does it go down like are you a really uh, disciplined writer or like you know I always sort of envy poets because I feel like you really can work in uh, like these feverish bursts. Uh, And then obviously you go back and and revise, but it seems like a good poem can come out in a straight shot almost. Yeah, it can sometimes, definitely. And sometimes it doesn't, you know, and you labor over something and it's just awful. And then you try to save it in this really weird, awkward way. And, you know, that feels like it came from something else. well, but okay, so but no, for me, I am not disciplined. No, and and now with my child, it's like I have to be, or else I'll never write again. Yeah, so I'm I'm really struggling with that it's right ha- now. It's hard. How old is your child? A year and a half. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, my my daughter's only three, so but it does get better a little bit. Oh, um, it's been getting better and better. Yeah, Th- that first six months is just a complete loss. And then the, the second six months is um, like a, you know, an 85% loss. And then <laughs> gradually you, you recover some of your, speaking of individual liberty, you know. <laughs> um, so, okay. But well, let me ask you a question about composition because I often feel this way. And I, you know, just to use a more, uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe a cruder context, like in the, in the context of Twitter, for example, tweets that come to me like hot and fast or whatever <laughs> Whatever you want to say. That sounds a little weird, but you know, yeah, they just, uh, they, they flower quickly. There's like heat and energy in it and it's obvious. And I write them down. That goes well. If I labor over the tweet and I sit there and noodle with it and noodle with it, sometimes occasionally it'll work out well for me. Most of the time though, no. Same for you, poetry, like poetry wise? Same exactly. Oh, oh, poetry. I mean, Twitter wise. Yes, exactly. Okay. But isn't there, um, but isn't there some isn't there a connect, isn't there a through line there like I feel like with a poem or even with prose um, though I feel like you know you obviously have to do your editorial and you have to do the labor of going back over things a million times but it seems like when you you know when it's really flowing and it's really there and there's not much like second guessing or uh, self criticism happening that it that's when it's at its best mm-hmm. no yes yeah yeah I agree. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I, I guess there's any number of possibilities, but it seems like. I, I guess what I'm driving at is that 
for me, you know, you, I, I wrestle with, yes, you have to be disciplined when you write, but that would off, that often means that you have to sit there and write when it's not, um, you know, flowering in, in my brain hot and fast. <laughs> I wish I had a better way of saying that. It just seems weird to say it that way, but you know what I'm saying? So yeah. I, I sometimes worry if I'm being counterproductive by, by forcing the issue. And then I know that there's the whole argument that like, if you only work when you're inspired, you're never going to work or get anything done. So yeah. You see what I'm driving at? You see my conundrum? Mm-hmm. I do. I feel sorry for you. <laughs> I can just, <laughs> the pity in your voice is just so obvious. Um, <laughs> Uh-huh. So, okay. So you have this child, it's hard for you to write. You've now for, you know, you're now in a situation where you have to be more disciplined. Like, are you, are you setting schedules for yourself? And no, like, no, mm-hmm. not at all. No, I just, I don't like living that way. So I really fight against it. Do you, yeah. do you have any uh, desire to write longer form prose stuff? Or are you, are you pretty happy being a poet? I do. I, I think of ideas for longer prose. Um, but man, if I'm going to have to say the wall was green and the chair was puffy, like I would die. If I have to write all those details down, (laughs) you know, describing the room or something, I don't know if I can do that. I don't have, I don't have the, um, I don't know. I just, I would have to get out of the chair every five minutes. Yeah. I'm sort of that same way. So like when it comes to literature that really resonates with you, that is not poetry, are there books or authors that are working in a vein that you could maybe see yourself working in? Um, yeah. I mean, uh, there are. But you know what? Those aren't really the authors that I love. I sort of love those purple, you know, flowery writers that are just like, you know, go on and on about nothing. Really? Yeah. Just the, the fact that they I can do, do it. kind of do. Yeah. yeah. Like who? Do you, I mean, again, not to put you too much on the spot, but... Um. Well, like Somerset Mom or somebody. <laughs> yeah. I really love uh, I love The Razor's Edge. I read that when I was younger, you know, and like I just remember loving that book. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know that his friends called him Willie? <laughs> no. I just read that recently. I uh, I think I might have even said that on the show. It just seems funny because his name is so formal and literary. You know, yeah. People really... who, people who knew him were just calling him Willie. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. So, uh, you know, you don't, you, you kind of have a thought of maybe writing something prosy, but you're not quite sure what it would be. And you're not quite there yet in terms of carving out the time to do it Mm-mm. or summoning, no. summoning the taskmaster's will. No, no. And you know what? Maybe I, if I had like, you know, abundant time, I wouldn't even maybe do that. That wouldn't be my first project. What would be? I really want to make like a comedy museum. You do? Yeah. Like what? Like for just like, like... a traveling comedy exhibit. Maybe. Inter- interesting. So like so in like... a gallery, like in a in a in a in a not in a comedy club, not in a mall kiosk, like <laughs> shove it into the art world. Uh okay, so let's flesh this out cuz I'm having trouble seeing it. I mean, I I I get the basic concept, but like what are we talking about here? Like is this a a comedy museum devoted to like stand-up comedy or you narrative no, comedy? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, well, I have a few ideas, but I don't know what it, I like. The first thing I was thinking was it would be like artifacts of jokes. So you would have like the chicken that crossed the road and, you know, um, <laughs> like, what, a li- your mom's like a li- combat boots, like you'd be like in a, like 
museum setting with like a little plaque next to him, you know. That sounds, I think that sounds brilliant. So are you talking a live chicken or would this be a taxidermied chicken? I don't know. I love taxidermy. You Okay, so this is weird. Do you know Summer uh, Block? You're from, yes. She's a taxidermist. She's a buddy of mine. <laughs> I didn't know she was. <laughs> she's just started up. I mean, I was talking to her not too long ago and she's like, yeah, I'm doing taxidermy now. And like is full on like she will gut the animal and do the whole thing. And like it's like a hobby. Yeah. Yeah, she'll go get that dead. woman is amazing, man. Yeah, she's hilarious too. Very gifted, uh, you know, comedy writer. Yeah, uh, or humor writer, but yeah, like she'll like go like she'll see a dead animal on the side of the road that's in relatively good shape, and she will scoop that thing up and taxidermy it. Damn. Yeah, and she and she also has a chicken coop in her backyard. Poor <laughs> mm-hmm. so, chickens. Yeah, so maybe you could you know maybe she can outsource one of those chickens to you for your roving yeah. museum. Um, yeah. But I want to talk to you about your interest in comedy because there, you know, humor is obviously a big thing in your work and uh, in your Twitter, and you have this kind of naturally funny bent, um, which I really respond to. You know, I I think I'm sort of similar. I don't know. I don't think I'm as funny as you are, but um, <laughs> that's like a thing for me. Like I think there are people in the world who sort of um, make sense of the world through that, and I find it to be a great relief. And I also. Th- I just really hold people who can make things funny in high regard because uh, as far as I can see, it's the most, um, just for me, I don't want to make grandiose like sweeping statements, but just for me, like in terms of what's thrown at us in life and what, you know, what we're, what we are um, charged with making sense of uh, and and what we have to deal with. Like, it seems like humor is uh, a noble response Mm. to, to the craziness. And Mm -hmm. so where do you think yours comes from? Yeah, I think about that a lot. Um, I guess it comes from my parents. They funny people. They're funny people in, they're not, they're not jokesters or pranksters, uh, but they're funny people and they recognize funny things. Um, so like easy laughers, they laughed at your stuff when you were a kid. Nope, nope, not easy laughers at all. <laughs> but um, what they did laugh at, you know, you you were just like, damn, that's right, that is funny. Like that's one hundred percent funny. Yeah. Um. So they're kind of picky, maybe, and they both have very different senses of humor. But you know, also it's got to be too that I was I had um, severe shyness. Uh, like I couldn't even order in a restaurant until I was maybe seventeen or something. It was like. D- 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 disabling. I mean, it was awful. What's it from? Um, like, what is that? Um, Do you, have you have you have you like gone to therapy and like deconstructed this? Like, what is sh- what is shyness? Because I've I talked to another author uh, who's actually currently still like extremely shy and like reticent, but um, it's not it's not totally uncommon in the literary world to be like uh, shy like that. But when you you can't order in a restaurant, that seems to be like a pretty intense level. Do you have an under- an idea of why that was? I was filled with anxiety and fear, and as some for some reason, if somebody laughed at me, I guess I thought I would die. You know, that was like I was afraid that someone would uh, just, you know, destroy me. In that, I don't know. It's totally irrational. Totally irrational. Yeah. Well, it's like an um, identity thing, you know. I think it. I think it. Yeah, definitely was because I. I. I didn't have. Um, I didn't have a strong identity, I guess. I, my mother's pretty intense and amazing and strong and powerful and funny and amazing and 
you know, oh, you know, she was, I, my, one of my earliest memories is her coming into daycare and it was nap time and the door opens and the light is shining around her like God. Like, and I, I think, so I thought that she was, she was just everything for me. And I was just under that. So was she, um, was it overbearing or was it just like your perception? It was my perception. I, I don't think my sister feels that way as much. I mean, we both have enormous respect for her and think she's the best mom ever, but I don't think my sister maybe, I don't know, didn't internalize it as much as I did. Maybe. Do you think your child is looking at you right now, thinking that you, like like seeing you all backlit and powerful? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I hope not. I wonder, I what, you know, I think about that with my daughter. Like, it's just when you're a parent, you're like, I don't want to screw this being up. But it seems like inevitably you will somehow. <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of like part of the, it's part of the bargain. And I just, will. I find myself, you know, strangely, and, I, I, and of course this might sound silly coming from uh, somebody who does a talk show, uh, but I find myself really measuring what I say to my daughter and like how much I say. It, mm-hmm. al- it almost just seems like, you know, don't overtalk. Just let her figure it out and just be a good example. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, I think I'm trying to minimize risk. Like, the less I say, the less I can screw up. Oh, I don't know. I think you're thinking about it too much. Uh, that could that could be totally true. I think, yeah. that, I think that would fit my profile. Um, okay, so we never, you know, just to kind of be uh, all over the map with this, like we, we sort of stopped when you were in Fredericksburg at uh, Mary Washington College. Yes. Uh, is Mary Washington George Washington's wife? Is that right? And, uh, mom. Oh, mom. Okay. Yeah. What was his wife's name? Martha, I think. Martha. There we go. Okay, so Mary was his mother. Mm-hmm. She now has her own college. Yeah. Um, so you were there, you were a great student, you were uh, all like Simone de Beauvoir, like philosophy. Uh, I was a terrible student. I just, I did a lot of drugs and just partied a lot. Oh, you did? Okay. So that, this is where, I thought you said you waited until you were 32 to go off the rails, but you did have like... Oh, I mean, well, I was a dick to my mom when I was 32, but that was how, that was my rebellion. No, no, I was terrible. I went to jail. I did, I was terrible. Oh, you did. So when did you go to jail? <laughs> well, <laughs> it was just an overnight thing. Okay, like, like you'll have to read my work to find out about that. Just youthful stupidity. Can we just at least? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so when you uh, were in high school, like, were you partying and doing stuff? Because I feel like uh, you know, to go back to the shyness thing, I sometimes feel like people who are really shy as adolescents. Uh, alcohol or other uh, substances can sometimes be a saving grace. Like they can feel like it helps them uh, relax in social settings. Was that the case for you? Um, no, not exactly. I, I mean, I w- remember, well, when I was going to college, I made an F- I said, I'm going to get up and I'm going to talk to that girl over there that's sitting by herself and I'm going to not be shy anymore. I said that out loud, a conscious effort. In, in the and library? That started... <laughs> In public, in the student quad. Uh-huh, with yeah. the candlestick. Um, that, so I I tried to get over that. I knew that I couldn't live that way anymore. Um, but, yeah, no, all that alcohol and drugs and whatever, that was just to have fun and, you know, expand my mind. Yeah, so like hallucinogens, like that sort of college experimentation? Uh-huh, everything. Everything. 
Yeah. Did you ever have any problems with it? Like, did you ever, I mean, was it all just kind of like... Uh, I'm sure I did. Sure, yeah. Eventually. Okay. Yeah. Of, okay cause this but is nothing a, like, I didn't, I didn't, no, not rock bottom or, Okay. Yeah. you know... Uh, rehab or anything no but yeah it's because like, I, I was sort of the same way like i never i'm lucky like not to have like the addiction uh thing you know but i definitely anybody who goes down that road and experiments and it becomes part of your like social life like at some point there's a, a situation like a case of diminishing returns uh, yeah in fact I, i've i've argued before that like basically the first time is the best and then every single time you do it thereafter it's just a little bit less cool or less beneficial or something. Hmm. Does that make any sense now? <laughs> I don't know. No, I mean, some things aren't like that. Like, um, no, I think, I think so, like maybe alcohol is like that because that seriously gets boring, you know? But right. something that's just super crazy, like a hallucinogen or something, and I mean, depending so much on your context and who's around you and where you are in life and I don't know, like that has a, a potential, like that would be like saying traveling gets more boring the more you do it. Like, Yeah, that's true. That's true. So when it comes to um, like hallucinogens in particular, uh, this is a fascination of mine. I always ask people about this, but did it have, do you feel like it had a, a real impact on your identity, um, like both as a person and I guess creatively specifically? Um, definitely as a person, yes. I think it, uh, I have less hangups about most everything, <laughs> that, um, but creatively, uh, creatively, I don't know. I, I couldn't say that for sure. No. Okay. And so did you ever, did you ever have like one epic experience that you look back on and you're like, Oh my God, I saw God or the sky ripped open or is this just kind of like a cumulative thing? Mm, like a cumulative thing. Yeah. Do you ever do ayahuasca? No, but I was in Peru, and um, they had those guided ayahuasca tours. Yeah, it's big business down there. It's yeah, a, and a, I, but I was like, what? I have to not only hang out in Peru, but with, like, a shaman. <laughs> I was like, I think I would freak out. I'm so, no, I've been thinking about that more than I would care to admit. Like, I have, because I'm, you know, uh, it, it it's all tied to this, like, tendency of mine to... Uh, you know, fall prey to like any kind of health trend. You know, if somebody tells me that like sunflower seeds will make you live to be a hundred, like I will suddenly be like, I need sunflower seeds. And <laughs> I hear people talking about ayahuasca and how it's just had this like incredibly, you know, healing, like cosmic, you know, impact on them. And they were in the jungle with this shaman. And I'm like, I should just go down there for a week. Just it would, at the very least, it would be, it would lead to an interesting essay. Oh uh, God, it would be. But as a parent and as a husband, it's like a bit of a tough sell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's hard to justify the, both the expense and then, you know, trying to be like, honey, I'll be back in a week. <laughs> yeah. I might not be the same person, but you're cool with that, right? <laughs> you love me for who I am, regardless of who that happens to be. Uh, so you, you would never do that. Like, have you, have you passed that phase in your life or are you still open to those kinds of experimentations? Like in the right, in the right setting? I guess in the right setting. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. But I don't, I don't really do it too much. Nope. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so um, you're in your 20s. You've got your philosophy degree. Uh, you've been arrested once in a uh, sort of like youthful mishap. Um, you've had some uh, drug experiences, and then what? <laughs> um, well, then I don't know what to do with myself. Um, and I just 
you know, have a bunch of part-time jobs. I wait tables. Um, where, where I, the, I'm writing. I'm writing and I'm drawing comics. I'm sending comics around. And uh, I, I, then I moved to Richmond, Virginia. It's what? a great city. I love it. Is it? Mm-hmm. That feels like Richmond's. Uh, isn't that where the South surrendered in the Civil War? Or am I completely mis? I might have my history all wrong. Or is that Appomattox? I forget. But I think that's Appomattox. But Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy and. The- uh, burned to the ground that's what it was okay. yeah so what like but it's a good uh, southern town it is i mean it has well i don't know if it has that that weird southernness that's just awful and horrible um like like a lot of them i guess southern towns but um but it has like really thriving art scene um and it had a lot of young people, and it was really perfect place for me uh, at that time. And did you have? Did you were you harboring literary aspirations at that point? Were you? Pl- I was. I was harboring a lot of aspirations. I wanted to be a musician too. I played a lot of shows there, wrote songs and my guitar, and I wanted to draw comics and wait, like singer, all sorts like, of things. I wrote like, plays. I did. I just tried everything. So wait, like singer songwriter? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can sing. A little. You can yeah. play the guitar. Like, do you, can you compare yourself yeah. to somebody? Could I what? I mean, like, can you compare yourself to somebody so we can I can get an idea of like what kind of music we're talking? Oh, about? Uh, I don't know. Like, no, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I've played. I played in like um, in like a dream pop band in high school a little bit, and then um, a noise band in New York, and all over the place a little bit, but. But oh, yeah, the songs I write are just, you know, they're kind of like poemy songs. Funny. Uh, they try a little bit, but not not, not like comedy guitar person. Okay. Which is very hard to find a good one. Yeah, yeah. Well, just like to sustain it across a body of work, like it's fun. You can like I think people can sometimes hit like one song that works that way. Mm-hmm. But like to do yeah. to do an album or to like build a career mm-hmm. around that is like that's a tough trick to pull. No. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, maybe that's too like how I try to incorporate humor. I mean, I, it's everything's an accident. I don't try to do anything. I'm just being out here and vomiting everywhere and people are <laughs> publishing it. But, um, but, you know, but maintaining a level of humor through like a whole novel or a whole book of poetry, or, it doesn't work. I mean, even in a stand-up set, like, you know, you need... <laughs> You need the tragic, you need the seriousness, and you need the humor, and it all works together, like, you know, Spalding Gray style, like, really great. Yeah. So is he one of your heroes? Yeah, I like him very much. And then what about other, like, are there any comedians or comedians that you really respond to? I really love Groucho Marx. I really like um, Robert Benchley. Uh, old guy, you know him? No, who is that? I was thinking of the Peter Benchley wrote Jaws, so they're not right. The same it is his dad. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, what did he do? Yeah, he was he was part of the Algonquin Round Table. Oh. Um, you know, with um, um, who's the woman? Like Sherwood Anderson, and then uh, Jack uh, Shirley, not Shirley Jackson. Oh, good lord. Um, I can Google I it. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I guess I could too. Um, uh, but um, yeah, just kind of a wit, you know, in New York in the 30s. And um, 
But what I really like what he did, he put on these fake lectures and filmed them, like really early film stuff. Okay. And uh, but talking, I mean, they weren't silent. Um, so yeah, he would he put on a lecture called "The Sex Life of the Polyp," and and it was in front of like the Ladies Flower Auxiliary Club or something. And so you had all these like pristine, pompous ladies in their hats and whatever in the audience. And then he was trying to like lecture uh, and nervously about uh, this very scientific um, creature, uh, but talking about sex. So it was really weird, awkward moments. And, and then a little slapsticks too, you know, like the, the projector screen would flap up and things like that. I don't know. I really love that. I really like the humor in, in out of context and especially in like a really formal setting like that. Right. And, and, uh, I, I did Google it. Is it Dorothy Parker? Yeah. Yeah. Dorothy Parker. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Um, okay. So, uh, moving from Richmond to New York city, is that the next move? No, then I moved to Arizona and I got an MFA in poetry. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you decided that poetry was going to be your thing. Yep. You got into the University of Arizona. What, when were you there? 2002, 2004. All right. Was like the, uh, like the legend of David Foster Wallace thick there in the MFA program? Didn't he go there? Yeah, he, he did. I think he just went to undergrad there. I don't know. Did he go to... No, he went to, he went to Amherst. I think he went to the MFA program. I don't know if he finished. Okay. I'd have to look, look it up or whatever. But No, you know, I didn't, I didn't know. I was so into poetry and... Yeah, into my own thing. I didn't even, I didn't feel him there, no. Who were some of your poets? Like, was that, I mean, I'm imagining you started to latch on to poetry when you were a, uh, like a student, a uh, philosophy student and whatnot, but like, w- can you talk about some of the poets that really set you on your course? Um, well, all, all over the map a little bit. Um, I really liked Larry Levis, and I got into Dean Young a lot, and, um, uh, um, I remember studying George Oppen a lot, and Alice Notley is amazing. Um, some of these people, you know, I like less or more now because some of them you can, you know, I don't know, when you read certain people at certain times in your life, like it's, you go back and you're just like, I can't read that anymore. It's just so, right. you know, 25-year-old summer or something. Yeah, no, I totally get that. It's like it's weird. The timing of a book, like the timing of a read is so important. And, and like... The greatest thing in the world is timing it perfectly when you read just the right book or just the right poem at just the right time. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I love, yeah. I, like it doesn't happen for me all that often, but when it does, like I, I always know it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, okay. And you had a good experience in your MFA program? Yep. I did. I made so many wonderful friends. Yeah. And like, who were you in class with? Like, were you like, I don't even know how their program works. Like, were you basically just running with your tribe as poets or were you intermixed with people who were working on novels and stuff like that? Or No, you could do that. But I chose this program mostly because it was short. It had like no literature requirements. Um, you pretty much could just take studio classes like workshops. Uh, I just, I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to write papers um, at that point. So, um pretty much just stayed with my group. Yeah. And, and then, uh, after you were poets d- there that year, I'm, I'm uh, sorry, what did you say? There were, Oh, they admitted a lot of poets that year. So oh. we had a big cohort. Um, and you know, I, one, one thing that it really did teach me though, is the community 
that poetry has just as its own genre um, uh, that, you know, we have to look out for each other because it's such a marginalized art. Sure. Uh, nobody reads it anymore. Um, mostly just poets read it and mostly poet poets, you know, publish each other's work and make chapbooks, you know, handmade books of each other's work and broadsides and put on poetry readings for each other. And, uh, you know, I, I could stay at a poet's house in every state in this country, like on their couch, no questions asked, even if I hadn't met them before. I mean, it's just, it's a small group of people that, you know, they know that they, they know they love it and they have to, they have to, be out there with each other and build the community ourselves. That's um, that's sweet. And and um, in terms of the the marginalization of poetry, you know, and the same can be said about all forms of literature, but but poetry is really out there. Um, you know, in terms of uh, you know getting people interested, uh, it's a, it's a tough thing to do. But I do th- I do feel sometimes that. You know, when it comes to like the internet and social media and people reading on their phones and, and so on and so forth, that poetry could potentially be headed for some kind of golden age or like, a, you know, could could find a new um, a new ability to reach lots of people because of these different media. Does that resonate at all with you? Do you think? That- yeah, it definitely does. I think that definitely is happening. Um, also, just the ease with which you can publish, and you can—I um, mean, I mean, like print two hundred copies of something. Right. Um, not really get something published. That's still pretty difficult. Um, but like that, and just you know, from all the way from you know in the '60s where people just Xerox or mimeograph you know poetry journals, like until now, it's just exploding. It's just. And and I think poets have long lived that way, and and they're fine with that. They're like, yeah, my poem was published in this mimeographed journal that, you know, had fifty copies, and that's great, and people celebrate that. And so, I don't know. That kind of attitude has also helped it along. So, do you actively sit around thinking about how to best use the internet to like build a community around your work? Is it something you spend energy on? Um, I guess I do a little bit. I mean, I can't, I'm not going to expand probably beyond the social media that I use. Um, There's only so much time in the day. Right. I can't have another thing. Um, But I mean, just a little bit. And you use Twitter mostly. Twitter. Yeah, I have, I do Facebook. Okay. So those two, Mm -hmm. the two may, I think I have a website that I occasionally update. Which is what? Let's plug it. We might as well. Oh, plug it. Asthmachronicles.com. As in like the, the breathing disorder, asthma chronicles. Yeah. Yeah. It's more of a condition, okay? Okay. <laughs> Which I, do you have it? I do, but I sort of grew out of it. You did? Okay. So, uh, you know, we're almost out of time, but I want to get through, like in some rough way, your um, geographical trajectory. So you finished, okay. you finished your MFA and then you went to New York City for a few years. That's no? right. Okay. For six years, yeah. Okay, and so I'm I'm imagining you know you're harboring literary uh, poetical ambitions at this point, and you're thinking like I need to go to New York if I'm going to do this. I got to be where the action is. Uh, I just always wanted to live there, you know, and I had no family, no ties, no responsibilities, so it was the best time to do that. And you lived like what Brooklyn? You did that whole thing. Yep, Brooklyn. Yeah. 
And then what were you doing? Just working like odd jobs and whatnot? Working, I was working in libraries. Okay, even then. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. But without I started the... working in libraries when I was 19 or something. No kidding. And then so like, but you didn't have the library sciences master's degree. No, I just went part-time in New York and finally got that okay. in 2009. So you got that degree in New York City? Yeah. Okay. Did you meet your uh, meet your husband in New York City? I met him in Denver. Oh, you did. So how did you get to Denver? <laughs> <laughs> I um, I was visiting a couple friends who lived here in Denver, and I was living in New York. And uh, they said, "Oh, while you're here, why don't you have a um, why don't you do a poetry reading?" This guy Noah puts poetry readings on at his house, so I contacted him, and he. He emailed everyone who was reading and asked for our bios, and so I wrote a little, you know, so he could introduce us at that reading that night, and um, I wrote something back, and I guess in the meantime, he had Googled me, and there was like a video of me uh, riding a bull, a mechanical bull, (laughs) poorly in New York, and so he's like, thanks for the bio, P.S., you're pretty good on a bull. Is that uh, is that uh, is that video still online? Uh, It probably is. I think it's my most watched video. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, just because people randomly, you know, want to watch mechanical bull riding <laughs> It's a thing. It's a fetish. I miss There's it. only a finite number of them, you There's know. There's a community of people out there. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, this guy's a little flirty or whatever. So you back and forth flirted all day long on email. And um, when I went out in two weeks, uh, we met and we spent like 19 hours together. And when I got home to New York, he's like, move here, send me all this links to library jobs, bought me a ticket to come out. He tattooed his name on his shoulder. And I was like, this guy is insane. He tattooed your name or his name on his shoulder? (laughs) My name. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This sounds like a, this is an incredible romance. This, yeah, it was. So you're, you're, you're flirting via email. Yep. Um, had you Googled him? Cause this is what you do. Yeah. You're like, I got to check out who this guy is. So, yeah. Yeah. So you, so you guys liked what you saw, like the track, the, there was a, that kind of attraction. And then you start emailing and then this 19 hours, you just show up and like, you're just hanging out. Well, yeah, I mean, I went to visit my friends, so, you know, I spent some time with him, but I, you know, I did want to see my friends too. So, you know, I, it was like the night of the night of, um, the reading, you know, and we spent together and then a little bit on another day. And then I was like, okay, I got to go home, you know? And then he's like, I'm getting it. I'm getting her name tattooed on my yeah, body. He, he was like, send me your signature. And I was like, no. And is... he found one of my comics online and blew it up and took it to the tattoo shop and tattooed my name on his shoulder. So it's my signature. And what was, how did you feel about that? Were you, were you like, that is so romantic or were you like, this guy's nuts? <laughs> I was a little bit like this guy's nuts <laughs> and it was scary and moving super fast. Yeah. And he's like, but, Come out, but move out here. That seems so, that seems so poetical or, you know what I'm saying? Like that seems, yeah. that's a romantic, mm-hmm. that's such a grand romantic gesture. You don't mm-hmm. see much of that anymore. And uh, I'm sad to say, I really am sad to say that it, when people do that, a lot of times it's misconstrued or uh, properly construed as being um, uh, overzealous or problematic or something. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it seems, yeah. like, it seems like a certain level of like restraint or discretion is, you know, con- like I- equated with uh, being virtuous, you know, like I kind of like the idea of somebody doing something grand and romantic like that. The world needs more of that. Yeah. 
I like it too. I I am not. He he is. We're different. I don't think I could have done that. Um, however, I did fly out in two weeks, and we got married at the courthouse. Two weeks later. Yeah. No way. So maybe I am capable of some of this. <laughs> and you and you guys have been together how long? Uh, now three years. After no four years. So a two week courtship essentially before marriage. Yeah. Yes. So you just mm-hmm. knew. Yeah, I knew. And he, yeah, it he, felt right. Everyone was like, "You're crazy. Why are you doing this?" And all I could say was, "It felt right." Wow. And, and I can't argue with that. No, you can't. You can't. And you know, there's no rules to this stuff. Like my parents only dated for three months, and then they got married. They've been married for forty years. So. Wow. You know, that's awesome. Yeah. I like that story. We should have started there. We could have spent a whole hour on that. <laughs> Um, well, that's great. And it's, I guess it's, and you know, it, we could have started on it, but it's also a nice place to end. Nice, sweet, romantic story. Uh, you're now in Denver, you're working in library sciences, you have a new book rolling out, um, and you have a very funny Twitter. I have to commend you on your Twitter. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for taking the time out of your day. And I hope you get a chance to go outside and experience uh, some fresh air and, and uh, Denver sunshine, <laughs> as opposed to looking out your little window onto the library. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think I'm definitely going to do that. Thank you so much. It's very good to talk to you. Okay, you guys, there you go. That's Summer Browning. Go get her new book. It's called Backup Singers. It's available now from Birds. You can find Summer online at asthmachronicles.com. Uh, she also main, uh, maintains a very funny Twitter feed where her handle is at VagTalk. <laughs> at VagTalk, as in, I think, Vagina Talk. I'm not sure. It's V-A-G Talk. VagTalk. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Uh, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget about the app. Don't forget to sign up for premium. Support this show. Uh, the app is free. It's available wherever apps are available. So you go download that app, and then once you have the app, on, say, uh, your phone or your iPad or something, uh, then uh, new episodes of this program automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do a thing. They'll just be there waiting for you. You can download episodes to listen to offline, and uh, you can also sign up for premium right there inside of the app. And then you have access to everything, uh, every single episode of this program, including conversations with authors like George Saunders, Sam Lipsight, uh, Edward Dantica, Cheryl Strayed, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's so many. You got to do that. It's it's a uh, two dollars a month, four ninety nine for six months, or eight ninety nine for a full year of access. So if you do that, you support the program. I get happy. I jump around. <laughs> if you could imagine that. So please go get the app. Please remember as well that Goya had nineteen children by one wife, and that Hannah Arendt died of a heart attack. Thanks to Summer Browning for uh, agreeing to talk with me. That was fun. Go get her book. Thanks to you for agreeing to listen to this, even though uh, the agreement is implicit in you pushing play. I realize that we've never actually exchanged uh, words about this, (laughs) or a handshake for that matter. Uh, That's all. I'm going to go pack. I'm going to collect my uh, my thoughts. I'm going to have a word with myself. I'm going to do what people do before they travel. I can sort of feel like I, I can sort of feel myself getting sick. You ever get like that before you travel? You're busy, you're harried, you haven't been sleeping. I need to, I need to take vitamins. <laughs>